Welcome to the Compassion Parenting Podcast, helping moms to love wisely and well. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Wild, integrative pediatrician and mom of eight sons who continually challenge and teach me. Over the years, I've learned that rather than outward technique, it's the internal landscape of the heart that affects parenting more than anything else. Mothering is about being, not just doing. You have everything you need within you to become the parent you want to be. So let's bring it out. Welcome to the Compassion Parenting Podcast. Today we have the opportunity to speak with Tina Feigl. She has a master's in school psychology. She's been coaching parents for over 20 years and has trained over 600 other parent coaches. She is an author and a TEDx speaker, and we're so excited to glean from her wisdom. Tina, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Dr. Mary. I'm just thrilled to be here. So what I'd like to just jump into right away is I was really drawn to your TEDx talk, which was entitled How to Stop Kids Meltdowns and Gain Their Cooperation. And I feel like just this title encapsulates what all of us as parents are wishing, you know, to stop the meltdowns, gain cooperation. Can you start out by sharing a couple main takeaways from this talk? And I'll also put a link in the show notes to it, but things, some things that you really wish that every parent would know. Well, one of the things that I think is really important for parents to understand is that you're not seeing the full picture when you're looking at a meltdown. Mm or when you're seeing any kind of misbehavior, you're seeing something that's coming from a very deep feeling, not misbehavior or disrespect. Those things are so common in today's society that we think we're seeing those things, when actually what we're seeing is a physiological response to input from the parent or to the situation. Mm, I love that. And I think it's a very, you know, this being the compassion parenting podcast, I think that's a very compassionate view to really try to see, you know, the other person's context and, and really interpret their behavior in that context. So I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, and you, you mentioned something about physiology. And I know that one thing you teach is how the way that we interact with our kids really affects their physiology. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. When we're talking to kids, their bodies are always responding and we don't tend to think about that. So it's kind of a new way of looking at what parenting is all about. And in the back of their brain, near the brainstem is a small walnut sized organ called the amygdala. Many parents have heard of this when I talk to them about it, but they don't really know how it works into parenting. And it's actually the threat alarm. It's constantly scanning the environment for, am I safe? Mm -hmm. And the amygdala says to the kid, without the kid's knowledge at all, if your parents see you, you're going to survive. And if they don't see you, you're not going to survive. So get their attention. Mm. And that's where our behaviors come from because kids know what gets the attention of the parents 
acting out. Yes. (laughs) And so when parents give attention to the acting out, they're actually perpetuating the thing they don't want. Mm -hmm. That's that's kind of the basics of it. And then the prefrontal cortex is at the front by the forehead, and it's where all the rational thought takes place and all the planning ahead. And the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala are neighbors in the same skull, I like to say, but they never talk to each other and they never operate at the same time. (laughs) And that's good to realize. I know that a lot of parents that talk to me, they say, well, I tried to, you know, talk to them and reason with them and they just would not hear it. And and I say, yes, (laughs) and this is why. This is why, because you have to turn the amygdala off before the prefrontal cortex can come online because they never operate at the same time. So mm-hmm. they're very independent. And the amygdala is no nuance, no nuance whatsoever. You know, it just is either on full force, get their attention, you're not going to survive or it's off. And it doesn't have any kind of like degrees, you know, <laughs> it's just on. <laughs> the amygdala's job is actually to help the child survive, a really good thing. Yes. But it just way overdoes its job a lot of the times. If if a child has experienced trauma in the past, the amygdala starts firing at that age really strongly. And it forgets that when the child is in a home and comfortable and has food and clothing and caring and love and a roof over their heads that, that they're safe, but the amygdala doesn't know that. You know, it's, it's still firing. Mm-hmm. I know that some parents, when they hear this explanation, they say, so I know I'm not supposed to pay attention to this misbehavior in terms of like rewarding or reinforcing the subconscious seeking of attention. But but then what do I do? How do I respond? What if my kids are, you know, doing things that I feel like they shouldn't be doing? And and how do I keep them accountable? Even if I understand why it's happening, how do I keep them accountable for their behavior? The way to help when a child is melting down is to use reflective listening, which helps the child feel seen. So you're really angry right now because your brother just took the remote control and you were watching that show. Or you really don't want this thing to be happening that's happening. You really don't want us to be going out when you were so ready to stay home. And it's not like, I know you really don't, because if you say, I know, that means there's a but afterwards, you know, logic. And we have to just say it very directly. You, You do not want, or you're feeling upset, or you're worried about, or you're frustrated with. That's all. And then pause. Don't jump in with explanations or solutions. You don't even have to solve the problem. You just have to hear the child. That's what calms the amygdala. And then the prefrontal cortex can come online. And then usually I encourage parents to ask a question instead of talk logic to them at that point. Yes, I love that. And I I know with my kids, I use this kind of narration um, even when they were pre-verbal. You don't even know necessarily when kids are starting to truly understand what you're saying, but I felt like it helped me, not only helping them, you know, whether they could understand it or not, I felt that it helped me keep context for the situation to be saying like, you don't want me to change your diaper right now. This wipey is cold, you know? And I feel like 
not only did it help with their language development that I kind of narrated situations, but I think that even young children understand more than we realize. They really can sense an empathetic tone of voice. And when, if they grow up with that, the way your kids have, think of the magic of that. Mm-hmm. You know, that they have felt seen and heard by you from the very get-go, from being a newborn. I just think it's a beautiful way to interact with kids because we want to teach kids to be compassionate. And how do we do that? We show them our compassion, right? Yes. And what about when do you ever have parents that try to restate and do this reflective listening and their kids say, no, I don't, or they they argue with the assessment that the parent has given, then what's the next step there? Then tell me what it is. And then just listen, be willing to be wrong when you're reflecting. That's what I always say. And when they correct you, believe it and then feed that back. Yeah, because it could be something different. You know, you, you think you know, but it could be something different and they will tell you. And that's wonderful. This is a way, like, if they have to correct you, that's a way to really engage them in the conversation, right? Right, that is. So I hear a lot about the idea of co-regulation. And it's interesting how parenting experts have recommended different things through through time. There was a while where timeouts were the, the new thing, and and now we've kind of moved away from this idea of kind of casting out children who are are having emotional difficulty and, and trying to co-regulate and, and kind of stay with them. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, I like co-regulation. I don't like teaching regulation skills to a child and holding them responsible for remembering the regulation skills when they're upset, because I don't think it gets to the issue. Mm. I mean, it's like teaching them to jump over a, a hurdle, but you didn't really get to the reason that they needed to jump over the hurdle. Mm. So. I always think that connecting on the emotional level with what the child is feeling is the number one thing. Then after that, if they want to engage in co-regulation, you know, the parent calms him or herself at the same time that the child calms, that's perfect, you know, and it involves maybe taking 10 deep breaths together or, you know, standing on our head together or doing a yoga pose together or whatever it is that they do to co-regulate is wonderful as long as the underlying issue for the behavior has been addressed. Hmm. So important because I think that we do hold our kids accountable for a lot of things. We expect a lot of them um, to apply things in the moment when we've just taught it in the abstract. And that's a very intricate and high level skill that we as adults haven't mastered so often. (laughs) So I I like that directive and that thought to just connect and listen empathetically as your number one tool. So if we are with our child, staying with them in a state of big emotion. Some kids don't like that. They say, go away, mommy. You know, they, they don't seem to want that physical presence. Or then some kids can get sort of aggressive. And do you recommend that parents stick around for that kind of behavior? Or I recommend that they wait just a little while until the, the peak of the 
meltdown has occurred and the child starts to come down, then I would start reflecting their feelings. But I wouldn't do it at the peak of the meltdown because usually they can't take in anything. They're so overwhelmed with their own feelings that input is just not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I would just wait a little bit and I wouldn't leave. I would stay in the room with a calm presence and a calm body and a calm face, calm demeanor, because we don't want them to feel abandoned when they're having struggles. Mm -hmm. We want them, you know, it's just like you said, with time out, it's like push, pull it, putting the kid away somewhere else. We don't want them to feel abandoned. So I just think like even sitting down can make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. To just be present sitting down instead of standing can make a huge difference. Even sitting on the floor, it, there's a gesture there that says, I'm with you, I'm calm, I'm giving you space to feel your feelings, and you don't really you know, have to talk to me at this point. I like that phrase, the calm presence. In my earlier training in mind-body medicine, I was working with this mentor who was a guru in pediatric self-hypnosis and you know he would teach kids who were going through major procedures like kids who you know had cancer and, and needed to get multiple blood draws to to be able to use this guided relaxation to get in a place where it didn't bother them so much and where they could cope with it or kids that had pain for other reasons um and one day I remember asking him, so what about the younger kids? Like, what about the babies and the toddlers? And he said, I work with their mother. He talked about how so often there can be this matching of physiology. You know, if we offer that calm presence, then often our younger kids especially will match their breathing with ours and will we'll begin reflecting us. And it might not happen overnight. It might not happen immediately. It might even take multiple times to to kind of transmit this but over time I, I really believe that it happens i really do too and i think humming or singing could add to it as well mm -hmm. and i think it's interesting how some sometimes kids really do know what they need in the moment and they can tell us i remember i i had a two-year-old son and I was just rocking him before I put him in his bed. I, I, his name was Malachi, and I would say, nice, Malachi, nice, Malachi. And at that particular time, I was just silently rocking him, and he said, say nice, Malachi. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that um, it's just amazing how even a young child, we can't necessarily rely on them to tell us what they need. We have to be perceptive and proactive. but. We also have to be ready to listen if they do tell us. So Absolutely, yes. I love that example. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, and, and we have near mirror neurons as well, you know, where kids are, are picking up our mood and our statements. And so that's kind of where this all comes from physiologically as well. You know, the mirror neurons will be like mirrors to them and they'll they'll pick up our our moods and i think that many parents just aren't aware of this you know i think parents who are struggling are all innocent basically yeah. you know they just you know if you don't know what's causing the behavior in your child and you're trying every single thing you just didn't know what was going to really work 
And mm-hmm. so when I coach parents and when I train parent coaches, that's one of the main things. Parents are doing the best they can with what they know, mm-hmm. but we never make them feel guilty or responsible for hurting their child or anything like that. You know, it's just, let's, let's take you where you are right now and move it forward and show you some ways to be successful. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. And I can tell too, that you would have that orientation towards kids too, that kids are doing the best that they know. Same thing. Kids are innocent. Yeah, They're, They're just, their bodies are just responding. They're innocently trying to survive based on the action of an organ they don't even know is in their bodies, you know, and it's like (laughs) they're not responsible. I sometimes liken it to a seizure. You know, if your child has seizures, you would never blame them for brain function glitches. You know, that's what's happening. Same thing. Yeah. I, I think that that's such a powerful assessment that we are innocent Um, And I think that that gives us permission to move forward because so often we come from a place of shame and we come from a place of maybe feeling like we have to even punish or shame our kids into better behavior. And that just never works. It just is not effective. And and we're worried about how people are judging us about how our children act in front of others, too. And if we could all just land, if teachers and coaches and the general public could all just land on the innocence, just think what a beautiful world this would be. You know, we would all just be supporting each other instead of casting judgment. And Mm -hmm. that's really why I do the work I do is because we could build this world. We can build this world. Yeah, I think that is so beautiful. So I know that you have worked with families for many years and I'm sure have seen major transformation. And what I really hope that the listeners can feel here is that there is hope for things to be different. Like even if they feel like, you know, they're just meltdowns all the time. My kids are always screaming, always acting out. We're in the cycle. Are there any stories or situations that you can um, share with us to help us have that hope in possible change? Sure. And I have permission to tell these stories, too. So I will tell you a couple of wonderful stories. Um, I I did a presentation in a different state many years ago, and this woman was there as a school psychologist in the audience. And her school had sent her, and she had just taken in two foster children, a 12-year-old boy and a 7-year-old girl, five months before. And the night before this presentation, she had told the social worker she was going to have to disrupt the adoption Mm. that she was planning because of the seven-year-old's behavior Mm. was so hard. And she had shown in five months, absolutely no connection to anyone in the family. And can you just imagine living with this seven-year-old tornado in your home? Mm-hmm. slamming doors and breaking things and throwing and screaming and nonstop, nonstop. So she and her husband had just lost the ability to continue to cope. And I sure understood it. Mm-hmm. After the presentation, she came up to me and she said, I just contacted my husband. And I said, I think we might have hope now. Wow. And, and in six weeks, they were going to go to the court and either adopt the kids or disrupt the adoption. So that's how long we had wow. to help this child. 
So I said, tell me about the seven-year-old and what are her strengths? And she said, remarkably, she's a very good writer. Hmm. And I said, okay, we're going to use that. Get a notebook, sit next to her bed at night and hand it to her and say she can write anything she wants in the notebook. So she did that. She handed it to her. You can write anything you want. The little girl wrote, I hate you because you never let me have my way. Hmm. And in her wisdom, the mom took the notebook back and said, you hate me because you feel like you never get your way. Reflective listening. Right? Yes. And she handed the notebook back to her. And I still can't get over this, but she wrote, I love you because you let me be who I am. Wow. First sign of any connection in five months, and it was, I love you. So they continued with reflective listening. Her behavior got better and better and better. They went back to see the CPS social worker who was in charge of their case. And uh, the social worker had visited with the girl and she said, what did you do? I have never seen a child recover from reactive attachment disorder like this. What did you do? And wow. she told her and, and it was like quite a moment. Then they invited the girl into the session and she just started talking. She said, um, I remember my mother, her biological mother, I was in my crib and I could see her and I was crying and she didn't come. Mm. And then I cried harder and she still didn't come. And then I threw up and she still didn't come. Mm. She broke my heart in a million little pieces and you helped me put it back together again. Wow. The power, the power of that reflective listening and, and allowing someone to feel seen and heard. Unbelievable. So from that, I started incorporating writing I see you letters to children in a notebook where they could write back to the parent if they wanted to. No pressure to write back. But at the end of their I see you letter, they say, you can write back to me and put this on my pillow because the parent has put it on the child's pillow, you know, and, mm. and that has been so effective with so many kids and parents because the parents can actually put in writing that they love their kids. Mm. And when you put it in writing, it weighs more, right? It's just like <laughs> more, more of an effect on the, on the physiology of the child. So uh, now I use, um, I see you letters every time I coach. It's just it's so useful. And I got it from a seven-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. It's amazing how sometimes when you just change the mode of communication, then it removes so many barriers because there isn't that rejection or the back-in-your-face kind of back and forth. Right. It just lands. It yes. just, it can be received and and people can do these communications when they're in their right minds, <laughs> when they're connected with, you know, the, the true depth of feeling that they have and their true intentions. Right, right. And I, I often say to parents that kids are allergic to the sound of your voice. So let's do something that doesn't involve talking. And it lets <laughs> you know, so and they go, yes, they are allergic to the sound of my voice, you know, almost universally. <laughs> 
And, yeah. and so if we can write instead, it's just so powerful, as you can see. And I've had a million stories like that where the kids started to just, I say, don't don't ever mention the ICU letter after you write it. Just watch for softening. Mm. And invariably, they see the softening. I don't care if the kid ever writes back, but the softening is what we're looking for. They become more affectionate, they become more collaborative, they become calmer, and that's what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Calms the amygdala. And it's interesting because, you know, when we don't feel seen, then we feel the sense of threat. But when we do feel seen, we feel a sense of significance Absolutely. and safety. And so many times are, you know, you know, thinking too about some maladaptive teen behaviors, sometimes these are about trying to gain significance in any way they can to, you know, differentiate. And, and um, what a wonderful message to help them see that this isn't necessary, <laughs> that they are seen without these, these things. So um, I know that you also do some uh, evaluation, some assessments to kind of test the effectiveness of your coaching. And can you tell us about that? Because I think not all coaches and healthcare providers, behavioral health providers do this. This is a unique thing, but it kind of keeps us accountable and helps us really know if we're doing anything. Yes, we do pre and post questionnaires before coaching and after coaching. And we have an orange bar for before and a blue bar for after. And every single thing we measure goes in a very positive direction. And um, it it's just warms my heart. I'm looking at the chart right now. We have an N of 1,317 uh, fully completed pre and post surveys. Uh, and they are they're just magical to look at. And I, they're on my website, too. I'll, I'll post this particular one. I have another one on my website, but I'll post this one. Um, and it's parentingmojo.com if people mm-hmm. want to take a look. And I think it says parents tell us coaching works is, is the, the, the name of the page. So, <laughs> And what more do we want to know? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. And really helping our kids. Um, be functional, helping our relationships be healed. It's, I think, one of the best investments we can make. For some reason, sometimes it's easier for us to think about buying a admission to a sports camp than to heal some underlying things that will fix everything. So um, in, in my clinic, I use some testing as well. And it's just so powerful to see even like pre and post session, how the numbers change. And I think that in and of itself is a therapeutic tool that kids and families can see that change happens even in the course of an hour in situations where they thought that there was nothing left to be done. I think having that hope is is just magical. Is there any final gem that you'd like to share with us about um, cooperation or really putting ourselves so we're on the same team as our kids instead of on an opposing one. Right. I, I think I, I call it parents sometimes get on the other side of the fence from their child. And really what I know about parents is they don't want to do that. 
Mm-hmm. They they want to love their children because they do love their children. They just have no way of figuring out how to help the behavior get better at the same time that they're loving, which is why I love present moment parenting, uh, which is what I created. And it's all loving. It doesn't have to be like consequences, boundaries, you know, all, all the things that we think about with kids. And it can just be acceptance and caring and collaboration, including the child and solutions instead of just dictating what the solutions have to be, uh, seeing the child, seeing the child the way you would an adult in a business meeting, you know, including everybody's thoughts. Mm-hmm. And we just don't think to do it. And now we can think to do it and I can help people get there. It's just, it frees the parents as much as it frees the children. Well, I so much appreciate talking with you and I will put links to your work in the show notes and invite any parents who are needing some extra guidance to climb the fence and be on the same side with their children to to reach out to Tina. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Mary. It's been just a huge pleasure. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Compassion Parenting Podcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts. What resonated with you? What questions came up? Let's continue the conversation on Instagram at Compassion Parenting or within my free Facebook group, Parenting Well, Raising Compassionate and Productive Humans. Links are in the show notes. If you've gained insight from the time we've shared today, leave a review and subscribe. There's a quick how-to in the show notes. Have a blessed week. May you love yourself, your family, and the world wisely and well.